Welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from Training Industry. Hello, welcome to the Business of Learning. I'm Taryn H. DeLong, Managing Editor of Digital Content at Training Industry. And I'm Sarah Gallo, an editor at Training Industry. This episode of the Business of Learning is sponsored by Training Industry Research. As a training professional, your job is to effectively manage the business of learning. You probably listen to this podcast to gain insights on L&D trends being used by some of the most innovative thought leaders in our market. But did you know that Training Industry also provides data-driven analysis and best practices through our premium research reports? Our entire catalog, including reports on topics such as deconstructing 70-2010, women's access to leadership development, learner preferences, and the state of the training market, just to name a few, can be found at trainingindustry.com shop research. New insights create new ways for L&D to do business. Let training industry research reports assist you in taking your learning initiatives to new heights. Go to trainingindustry.com slash shop research to view our entire catalog. Dr. Amy Edmondson first introduced the idea of psychological safety while conducting research at Harvard Business School. Now businesses across industries strive to build psychological safety on their teams and into their organizations because it's proven to drive innovation and business outcomes. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Edmondson, who is the Novartis Professor of Leadership at Harvard Business School and author of The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. We're going to learn more about psychological safety as it relates to learning and development. Dr. Edmondson, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Taryn and Sarah. Perfect. Well, we are so excited to have you, Dr. Edmondson. Maybe you could start off with a basic definition here for our listeners who are wondering what psychological safety is. Psychological safety describes a climate where people feel absolutely free to take the interpersonal risks of learning. By that, I mean speaking up with questions, with concerns, with observations, with mistakes. And so they, they feel permission for candor. Thanks. That's a great definition. Perfect. Well, now that we're all on the same page, what tips do you have for learning leaders looking to build psychologically safe learning environments? First thing that comes to mind is I've just defined it. You said it's a good definition. It's a little long-winded. And sometimes I find it's helpful to say what it isn't, because as psychological safety has gotten more and more popular and and there's more discussion of it in the business world and in the learning world more generally, there's lots of misconceptions, right? And, and, and one of them is that it's about being nice. It's not about being nice. I, I do think it's about being kind and respectful, but it's not about being nice, which socially often means not saying what I really think, right? It means saving your face and mine. It's also not, and this is really important, especially in in the workplace, it's not about dialing it back a little on performance expectations, right? It's, It's not saying, oh, we want you to be comfortable. It is saying, in fact, the work that we do is challenging, it's important, it requires lots of teamwork and coordination, and so it's really important. If you want to do it well, and we know you do, it's really important that we understand that it takes a lot of honesty, right? It, t- it takes a lot of willingness to, to come forward. So when I address the question of, you know, what can you do to build psychological safety? I think it's just really important for, for um, leaders first to understand that it really matters to excellence. 
in an uncertain environment, especially, or in an interdependent environment. But if you don't have psychological safety and teamwork is required to do good work, you're really in trouble, right? You're not going to get the same level of performance that you want. Now, why I think it's important for leaders to understand that, or any, you know, team leaders, CEOs, it doesn't matter, is that if they fully appreciate it, you know, kind of intellectually and emotionally, then some of the things I will suggest you can do to build it come more naturally, right? It's not like you have to, oh, wait, what was it I was supposed to do again? It will be more natural. It'll be more spontaneous. And so here's what I would suggest. One, set the stage by clarifying the nature of the work, right? The work is challenging. The work is interdependent. The work is being done in the face of enormous uncertainty. And therefore, anyone's voice might be mission critical. And so setting the stage in that way is essentially about creating a rationale. Why is it not just a line, right? Oh yeah, we'd love to hear from you. But no, we really wouldn't. It isn't just a line. It's sincere because given the world we work in, we need you. We need your observations. We need your eyes and ears. We need your brain. So that's kind of setting the stage. The second thing is so simple, but so often forgotten, which is ask good questions, right? Use inquiry. Be driven, whether as a, a team leader or a team member, be driven by curiosity. I mean, make yourself care about what others are seeing and thinking and feeling. Because if you actually care, then you don't have to remind yourself to ask questions. You'll do it naturally, right? You'll just ask questions. And when you ask questions, people feel more awkward not reacting than reacting, right? So you kind of flip, you flip the natural calculus and you make, you, you know, you, you make it easy. When you make it easy to answer a question, when you just asked me a question, I felt I had to answer. I didn't feel that it was an option to sit here quietly. So it's just really powerful. And I think the final thing is to respond in a productive way, right? Which means respond with appreciation, with listening, with kind of some acknowledgement of what you hear, and always with a forward-looking emphasis. You know, it's sort of, how can I help, you know? Where, where can we go from here? What ideas do you have about sort of next steps? Those are sort of the three buckets of things, setting the stage, inviting input, and then responding to what people say in a thoughtful and interested way. Perfect. And Dr. Edmondson, you mentioned something that stood out to me that psychological safety doesn't necessarily mean being nice or holding things back, but it does mean being kind and respectful. Do you have any tips for leaders struggling to give feedback in a way that is kind and respectful yeah. without kind yeah. of tearing down that culture of psychological safety? You know, there's, there's classic advice, which I think is extremely powerful, which is you're critiquing the behavior, not the person. And so that awareness helps you to be as concrete as possible, right? So even though you might be giving criticism or negative negative feedback to someone, the very act of doing that is an act of caring, of believing the other person is worth helping, right? Is believing the other person has the potential to do things better or differently, right? So 
So as, as long as your um, spirit, you know, the, the, the constructive mindset, like your intention is to be helpful and you focus on concrete, observable behaviors and point out what you observe and what you think the impact of that is and what an alternative might be, that's incredibly respectful, right? And ultimately, so when I say kind, I don't mean in a soft and fuzzy way. I mean, in a way that is, is a genuine kindness. If you do something wrongheaded and I don't tell you, that's unkind in one, one way of looking at it. That's a great point. Sometimes talking about psychological safety in the context of learning, it makes me think about back to my college classes. I went to school to be a teacher. And we talked about creating you know, a safe and nurturing environment for children. Otherwise, they won't be able to learn. And I'm wondering if you could speak to how that translates to adults, because some people might argue, well, they're adults, they can deal yeah. with, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's funny because clearly the, the um, exact manifestation of and actual behaviors related to adult learners are going to be different than those that you would use for very young children or medium age children or high school age. Like, you, you know, we, we naturally, as educators, or even just as people, talk to people of different ages in different ways. And the tone you might use with a five-year-old would be enormously disrespectful to use with a 40-year-old. And most of that we sort of spontaneously adjust. So I think the, the basic advice is right, but the meaning of an, a, a nurturing environment is different for an adult learner than for a young child. You know, a, a nurturing um, environment for a young child, you're going to be very attentive to their need for naps and their, you know, maybe they're hungry when they get up. You know, there's all, but for adults, a nurturing environment means the right degree of challenge and support. Right? That, that what they're going to be able to learn is, is sufficiently challenging that it's, you know, it's, it's, they're just up to the task, but you have the supports, the structures, the content, you know, the feedback opportunities that are necessary to reach those challenges. And that's nurturing, right? But it's a very different meaning of, of the same word. That makes sense. So then what skills do uh, learning leaders and training professionals need in order to create that kind of environment? What, what skills do leaders need to create that kind of yeah. environment for employees and learners? Yeah, I, th I think those, the skills come, are in two categories. And category one are interpersonal skills, which the way we've been talking about already, but interpersonal skills that stem from, you know, an ability to connect with others and ability to listen. All of that, I think, stems from a genuine caring and an other orientation. You know, I think if, if there was a single piece of advice to give people to help them with their interpersonal skills, it would be focus on others. If you get out of your own head and you're focusing on others, you're going to, again, naturally do some of the things that help people and, and, and help you come across effectively, like asking questions, like listening thoughtfully and, and responding in, in, in ways that indicate you actually heard um, what was said. So interpersonal skills give others your respect and your attention. The other category of skills are what I would call process skills. And, and they're almost the, the skills that, that good scientists learn, but applied in a different domain. I mean, these are the skills of 
pausing to diagnose, you know, what's happening here, right? And, and being, being systematic about it, being analytical about it, what's happening here, um, looking at the data, meaning, you know, the, the data of, let's say, nonverbals or the data of what people are saying and doing, those are data. And looking at the data and trying to make sense and then checking your understanding through inquiry and, um, and, and sort of hypothesizing. You're always hypothesizing that a particular intervention might work now. When you hypothesize, you don't then just assume you're right. You do it and you pay close attention to what you, what you see, what happens next. It's, it's um, the wonderful book. Uh, by Don Schorn years ago. It's called The Reflective Practitioner on how really thoughtful, whether educators or architects or physicians, the very effective practitioners were not learning in the classroom and then going and doing their practice, right? They were learning in action. They were very unusually attentive to what happened as a result of their actions. I think of those as process skills, their science skills, their practitioner skills is almost more focused on the content of what you're doing rather than the people part of what you're doing. So let's say a learning leader is, is kind of working through that process and they're, they're at that diagnosis stage and they are seeing an environment that is psychologically unsafe, that's not conducive to learning. What kinds of things might they see and then what kinds of steps can yeah. they take to rectify it? We, they might see a lot of hesitation, right? They might see people kind of almost looking like they might want to say something, but not saying something. They might see a preponderance of good news or reporting successes only, right? They, they might see um, a kind of rosy content. And if you're in any company today, and you're hearing only rosy content, the chances are that's incomplete right? because we're all facing many, many challenges and very high uncertainty. So, so, so both of those are sort of nonverbal signals that you know, people might be holding back. You can often tell, I think more easily in person than online, but that's so it goes. But also a- analyzing what you hear and if it's, if it's overly positive, the chances are people are kind of holding back on the other stuff. And so that's, that sends you a signal that there might be a psychological safety issue here. What Great. next steps would you recommend to kind of help address that? So this is one of those moments where a hypothesis has just been articulated in your head, right? It's like, hmm, something's going on here. I mean, maybe people, maybe people do not feel comfortable really speaking up with their work-relevant ideas, concerns, questions, mistakes. And I think what you need to do next is raise that as a possibility, right? Sort of, sort of, uh, again, state your observation. I'm hearing lots of good news, which is great. And I am so curious about the rest of the picture. What isn't going well? I mean, sometimes that's all you need, right? That little intervention to sort of start to pull uh, more out. But uh, other times, if you're still not getting very good information, which is quite often the case, then you, you stop and say, go sideways and say, you know, as opposed to talking about the content, the work stuff, you talk about process and climate. You say, um, I, I'm sensing, and I'd love your thoughts, but I'm sensing that the climate for this team is not as open as I think would be optimal given the work you do. 
can we work on this together, right? It's an invitation. It's an invitation. It's not something you can fix from, you know, from the edge or by yourself. It's something that I think almost necessarily is a joint problem solving opportunity. Like how, what, what things could we do to make it easier for people to raise difficult issues or mistakes or crazy ideas? What ideas do you have, right? So you're sort of opening it up as a, is something that we can work on together. Perfect. Those are some great points. So you mentioned a bit about the challenges that you might face if you don't have psychological safety and kind of what that looks like. Do you have any insight on what psychologically safe work environments look in a virtual setting? Hmm. Well, you know, it's it's um, there's so many different virtual settings, right? Sometimes, you know, you can have a an enormous Zoom meeting with half a dozen screens of people. And that's a performance, right? That's much more of an audience. That's, you, you don't have spontaneous conversation. Or you can have a, a Zoom meeting like the one we're having right now, which is just the three of us. And it's more like a meeting. It's not exactly the same as us being around a single table, but it's more like that because we can, we can, get a little, we can see each other nodding, for example. But I think the, the most important thing with virtual work is you need a bit more structure. You need a bit more of a heavy hand. I think you should assume that it's harder for people to jump in. Because it's harder to just read the room and know when there's an opening. And, then, and therefore, you should do two different kinds of things. One is to kind of explicitly call on people. You know, Sarah, what are you thinking? Looks like your team has been working on this and, and I'd love to hear that we, we'd love to hear the update or what have you. And the other thing is just to use, use the chat, use the polls, use the various things, especially for larger groups to kind of be getting a sense of the, the pulse, uh, getting a sense of what people are thinking and feeling. Perfect. Well, I think going back to what you said before, Dr. Edmondson and really one of the signs of an unsafe learning environment is when things do look too positive. Of course, it's a little bit difficult for some team members to bring up their negatives if their leaders aren't doing that in their leadership. Do you have any tips on how leaders can be vulnerable and really set the tone so that their team members can do the same? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. It's a great question because it's, it implies a part of the answer, which is go first, right? If, if you are hoping others will be vulnerable, and by vulnerable, I don't mean going out on a limb with enormously personal information, not at all. I mean vulnerable in, in the very real sense that we are all vulnerable, right? We're vulnerable to being wrong. We're vulnerable to having our ideas rejected. You know, we're vulnerable to important colleagues thinking less of us for, for something we do or say. That's just a reality. And in a sense, what I'm talking about is getting okay with that, right? Getting okay with our vulnerability because our vulnerability is a fact. We might as well be okay with facts. If you want other people to be okay with their vulnerability, you must be okay, right? Especially if you're in a leadership role, you've got to go first. You've got to, if you want other people to be sharing mistakes, you've got to share mistakes. And if you think you haven't made any, think again, right? We've all made them. We've all made them. So you sort of um, 
say, well, I got that, you know, I got it wrong in that case, or I really thought that was going to work and we tried it and it was incredibly disappointing, but boy, we learned a lot, right? And so role modeling, role modeling is such an important part of the learning environment more broadly, right? I mean, whether, whether you're talking about a specific classroom environment or work environment more broadly, but if people, when, when we look, all of us look up to people in positions of, of authority or power and sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously, we really are influenced by, by what they do and say. So, you know, with the leadership role comes a, a real responsibility to, to be aware of the fact that you're having an influence um, and do your very best to have that be a positive influence. Thank you. That's definitely the best leaders I've worked for have, have worked that way. All right. So throughout this conversation, we've talked about, you know, the, what the psychologically safe workplace and learning environment looks like. And I think we all have a sense of, you know, the benefits of, of that to the people in the room uh, or in Zoom as it happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was wondering for, as we, before we wrap up, if you could kind of give us a sense of what the benefits are to the business as well. The benefits of the business are in two big categories, you know, and, and one is, let me start with the really positive one, which is innovation. Every company today depends on innovation, especially for the, the future of the business, right? You might be doing very well today, but you know, intellectually, you won't be doing very well five, 10 years from now, unless there's also innovation happening to keep developing the new products and services that the customers today and in the future will value. And innovation is enormously dependent on environmental psychological safety, because without psychological safety, it's hard for people to offer creative ideas. It's also hard for people to collaborate across um, expertise zones. You know, it's, it's easier to stay in your lane and stay in your silo if you don't feel psychologically safe. And, and that's necessary. Um, that, that, that boundary crossing is a key part of innovation. And finally, experimenting, right? When you, if, you're not, if you're not experimenting with things that don't always work, right? You've got to have some failures along the way to success in innovation. You're not going to be innovating. So you really need that kind of climate for, for people to take the risks of innovation. And so that's, that's really about the future performance of the, of the company. But even in terms of the present performance, the big opportunity for having a psychologically safe environment is avoiding preventable failures. You know, it's, it's avoiding making the wrong decision, you know, launching a product, acquiring a company, or even smaller decisions that at least one person, maybe more, kind of already knew was a bad idea, but they didn't feel they could speak up. You know, they didn't want to rain on the parade of the boss. And, and those kinds of things happen all the time in, in unpsychologically safe workplaces. The, Data were there, the experience was there to say, mm, bad idea, but no one was willing to say it. And so, gosh, the, the, I, wish, you know, I wish there were a way to quantify at a, at a societal level just how much waste is created by those kinds of situations. And of course, there's cartoons about that. You know, the boss is saying, Great idea, right? You know, and everybody's like, yes, boss, yes, boss. But the thought bubbles are saying, eh, no way, right? And, and it's, it, these are cartoons because they're 
funny because they're human nature. We all know it, but we, I think we rarely stop to realize how much waste that represents. And in my book, The Fearless Organization, I, I have you know, a couple of chapters of just stories of preventable failure, right? Just stories where people inside the organization saw the writing on the wall or knew something was a bad idea, but absolutely felt unable to speak up, right? And speak up in, in hierarchies. And you just kind of go, can't we do something about this? Yeah. Well, hopefully our listeners have some tools <laughs> they can use to do something about it, at least in their own roles. With that, Dr. Edmondson, thank you so much for speaking with us today on the podcast. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me. To learn more about psychological safety and view the highlights of this episode in animation, check out the show notes at trainingindustry.com slash trainingindustrypodcast. As always, don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.